of scripture this week is going to, ooh, wow, that was really weird. Um, went to get my watch, like my watch was going to preach for us. Uh, the scripture this week is uh, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflicts that you saw I had, and now here I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Um, before we begin the sermon, I have a, an important announcement. Um, I have extended to Joel uh, Schrader the position of our worship leader, and he has graciously accepted. And so well, let's welcome Joel and Ashley. Um, let me just explain why I decided to, to offer this position to Joel. Uh, when I was in the business world, I learned that you hire for competence. Um, when somebody applies for a job, you're looking for somebody who's competent, and that's, that's what you go for. I think the way that translates in the church is what we're looking for is heart and compatibility. And so I've been meeting weekly with Joel for last month and a half or so uh, since he started coming and start, been interested in the position. And what I've seen in this young man is the heart. He has a heart for Christ. He has a heart for God's people. And he is engaged in helping us in, intensify our worship. That, that's what his desire is. And then the other thing I was looking for is, is he compatible with us? There's different expressions of the church today. There, there's different approaches. And I think Joel's heart is very much compatible with our approach to ministry. He has a vision for not just the local church he's with, but the broader church, the, the evangelical churches across the valley, across the nation. And so um, it has been a pleasure to, to work with him and talk with him and get to know him more. And I just feel like he's, he's going to be a tremendous asset for our church. I think he's going to be a real addition. Um, the charge I gave him was a very simple one, intensify our worship. So how do you measure that? <laughs> how do you quantify that? Um, but that, that's his, his task and his calling. So as a church family, let's make sure we welcome the traders. Let's, let's, let's engage them and draw them in, and, and they're now part of our community. So thank you, Joel. Thank you, Ashley, for, for joining us. We appreciate it. Um, so with that, let me invite the children to Children's Church. Uh, your teacher will meet you in the back. And uh, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, uh, yesterday was the anniversary of the destruction of the World Trade Center in New York City 20 years ago. And so to think of what was happening 20 years ago today, as we were scrambling to find meaning to get some understanding of what had happened as our nation had a surge of rage, of anger that would be an attack. Lord, at the same time, in the midst of all of this, your church had a message. Your church had a message of hope we can look at the uh, rise and fall of many, uh, many cultures, many nations, many world states, 
And yet through the whole thing, Lord, you've had a purpose. And so even when we are attacked uh, um, in such a vicious and a, in a, a cruel and heartless way as we were on 9-11, Lord, your church grieved the loss of the people that were killed on the airplanes, in the towers, on the ground. Um, Lord, we grieve today as I was reading the the fallout from the destruction of the towers was not just the, the 3,000 people who died that day, but the ongoing legacy of health concerns since that, cancer and other illnesses that have risen, lung disease. Um, Lord, the, the scale of the evil that was perpetrated is unimaginable. And yet, Lord, would you grant your church to demonstrate hope in the midst of trouble and help us to see that all of these things are in your hand you could have swatted that aircraft out of the sky before it got near New York. And yet, Lord, you had a purpose in allowing these things to happen, purposes we can't even begin to imagine. But Lord, we know one important truth, and that is that you are good. So Lord, help your church today find hope in the newest challenge that we face, whatever that might be. And Lord, may we walk with you. And so, Lord, as we turn to the book of Philippians, we need to hear this message. We need to understand what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Because, Lord, that's what you're calling on us. And so would you come and be with us, Holy Spirit, and help us to see and understand this, to grasp the full meaning of it, but most importantly, to live a life worthy of gospel. Help us to do what you're telling us to do. Cause us to do that, we ask in your name. Amen. In Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part Two, I didn't realize it came in parts, but there's a Henry IV, Part Two. Prince Hal, he's the Prince of Wales, and he has spent his life living wild, partying with his friend Falstaff. And so when Henry IV dies, Prince Hal is now promoted to king. He becomes King Henry V. And so at one point earlier in the story, his father is wondering, what will he be like as a king? Look at the way he's living. How will he be when he becomes a king? And so at the beginning of his reign, Henry V meets with his court. And he promises him that he's a new man. He says, and princes all, believe me, I beseech thee, my father has gone wild into his grave. For in his tomb lie my affections, and with his spirits sadly I survive, to mock the expectations, and with his uh, um, uh, to mock the expectations of the world, to frustrate prophecies, and to raise out rotten opinion, who hath written me down after my seeming. The tide of blood in me hath proudly flowed in vanity till now. Now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea where it shall mingle with the state of floods and flow henceforth in formal majesty. So what Henry V is telling his court is there are people who, are, who have seen how I've lived and they've ripped, they've ripped me down as I seem. They've, they, they're assuming I'm going to be like that, but something has transformed me. The crown has fallen heavy on my head and now that pride, that, that wantonness that was in me has flowed out and I will live with majesty from now on. And what becomes of Prince Hal is he moves from that irresponsible prince to King Henry V, one of the most noble kings in British history. And so the question was, what transformed him? What made him different? 
Well, you can't look at him and say, well, he was certainly worthy of the crown. He had lived a life that demonstrated he was not worthy of the crown. As a matter of fact, at one point in the play, he's arrested. We don't see when it happens, but he, he engages with the Lord Chief Justice who arrested him in his youth. So he's been that kind of a person. And yet, because of his birth order, he is the king. And it's that office that somehow transforms Henry into an honorable and a majestic and a royal king who will lead well. Well, well similarly, 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 also, Paul is expecting Christians to live up to the majesty that has been bestowed on us. He's expecting us to live in conformity to the gospel. And so what we need to ask today is two questions. What does that mean to live worthy of the gospel? And how do we do it? King Henry had a crown put on his head. He had a royal ceremony saying, you are now the king. And he knew when that happened. He knew how that would come about. For us, how do we do that? How do we have this, this understanding of, of what it means to live in, in uh, a life worthy of the gospel? Well, fortunately for us, Paul is going to answer that for us. Now, what I've said in, the, in uh, previous messages is we're moving to this section of the letter that really is talking about Paul's personal information. He wants to update them on what's going on, and he has done that. He's been telling them about his situation and, and how things are going. And now he's going to turn and he's going to apply that for them. And so in verse 27, only let your life be worthy, or let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he says, this is what's been happening to me. This is what's been going on. This is what's what the progress of the gospel. Now you live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Now, at the beginning, I said that this is the theme verse for the, for the book of Philippians. This is kind of what I think is, is really captures the heart of the message. And I've had somebody ask me, well, why this one? Why not that or the other one? Why not to, to me to live as Christ and to die as gain? Uh, why not that one? Um, I think many of these other ones could fit. The reason I picked this one, the reason I said that verse 27 is, is it is because it has application and it has doctrine in it. And that's, that's what's going on in, in the book of Philippians. And most importantly, it has the word gospel in it. So it has application. Let your manner of life. It, it's not just here. Let me put these bits of information into your head. He, he's saying this should have an effect. It should pour out of you in some way. Let your manner of life. And it's not just your Sunday morning life. It's all your life. Let your manner of life. It has application. And then he says it should be worthy. And if you remember when I first started Philippians, I said that word worthy comes from this idea of scales, balanced. And so the way it kind of uh, grew into what Paul means by it is, is it's of equal value, of appropriateness. So let your manner of life be appropriate to the gospel. And there's the theology, this gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is not, you can be good enough to be saved. It's the exact opposite. You are so bad, you need to be saved. You're right with God, not because you struggle hard enough, but because you have trusted that Jesus will make you right. And so that corrects a misunderstanding of living a life worthy. Well, if I have to live a life worthy to be saved, no, you don't. You have to live a life that's appropriate to the gospel that you believe by which you are saved. So this is kind of like Henry coming to the throne, not because he earned it. He didn't go out and fight a battle or he wasn't voted on. He ascended the throne simply because his father gave it to him. 
and now you must live in accordance with what this throne means. You have become a Christian, not because you're good enough, not because you've struggled hard to do this. You have been made a Christian because your father loved you and called you to be one. Now live a life that's appropriate for that. That's where he goes with this. Now, what does that mean? What does it look like, Paul? We need to get practical here. Show me what that looks like. And so he goes on and he explains to them what that will look like. And the first thing he says is, live a life, uh, uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. So he says, he, he's, he's told us earlier, he's anticipating being released. And he plans to visit Philippi if he's released. That's, that's his goal. But he says, I want you to live this way so that if I come and see you or if I'm absent, I may hear of you. In other words, to live a life worthy of the gospel has an external manifestation. It looks like something beyond just what you believe or what you think. And I think this, this can be a struggle for Protestants sometimes. Um, James is a bit of a problem book on this because it says you're not justified by faith, you're justified by works. Whereas Paul says you're not justified by works, you're justified by faith. So how do we reconcile those two? Well, I think if we look at this and understand what, what he's saying here, you're justified by faith alone. Now live according to that. So that when I hear about you, people will mention what you're like. They will see something in you. So when James says, for example, in James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So somebody's going to argue, look, I, I have faith. I believe. I trust. James, nowhere does he say that doesn't count. That's not enough. It's insufficient. What he does say, though, is he says, show me your faith. What does faith look like? What faith is internally is trusting, is resting in, is saying, I don't count myself worthy. I'm looking to Jesus Christ. And I'm saying Jesus Christ is enough. That's faith. Show me what that looks like. What are we going to see? Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So what he's saying is to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, that is in accordance with the fact that you have been justified by faith, manifests itself in you. It's not this rubber stamp on your forehead and you never do anything different. So he's asking us, he's calling us to live a life that is different. What does that look like? The first thing he mentions is that you, whether I come to see you or if I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you stand firm. That's the first command. That's the first thing out of Paul's mind or out of his pen is to say, stand, stand firm, remain where you're at. I remember I saw a t-shirt advertised, I think it was on Facebook, and it said, pastor, because hardcore demon-stomping ninja isn't a job title. And I remember my first thought is, that's not a job description. We get this idea, we can, there's this, this strain in, in evangelicalism where we want this, what they call masculine Christianity. We want to go out and stomp some demons. We're going to go out and slay our devils. We're going to, we're going to go out and take over and power and conquer and swords and swinging. And, and it sounds very active and very engaging. Um, where does that come from? Well, listen to Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavy, heavenly places. Excellent, man. I put on the full armor of God and I'm charging out into battle and I'm going to slay. Isn't this wonderful? 
listen to how Paul applies it for us. This is the next thing he says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Yes, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. So we are not called to go out and slay the demons and do all this active stuff. We put on the full armor of God and we stand. That's what he's calling us to do. This is the first thing Paul mentions here is stand. When, the, the way you live the life that is worthy of the gospel is not by going out and doing all these wonderful, great things. It is by standing firm, by not being shaken. So why is that worthy of the gospel? Well, the gospel is Jesus did that for you. I've talked about this before. We, we look at the story of David and Goliath and we think, man, I'm David. I'm going to charge out there with my rocks and my slings and I'm slaying the giants in my life, baby. The reality is you're not David. You're Israel. Where was Israel at that time? Hiding in holes. They were terrified. Jesus is our David. Jesus has gone out and do that. So when, when Paul says that our, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, when he says uh, in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy our, or, um, 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we walk in the flesh, we wage, not, we wage war not according to the flesh. Our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but divine power for destroying strongholds. What does he mean by that? If, if, there, if our command then is to stand firm, well, what are those strongholds? We would like them to be demonic oppression of a geographic area, and there's angels and demons fighting, and we're going to engage with our prayer and our sword of the word. Listen to how he explains it. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, right after that, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. That's what our warfare looks like. So when Paul tells the, the uh, Ephesians, stand firm, he's saying stand firm in the gospel. Jesus has defeated those things. Um, Colossians tells us, uh, Colossians tells us that, that uh, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. First Peter 3 says, he has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is the champion who's gone out and done that. Our call is to stand firm in what Jesus has done. That's how we live a life that is in accordance with the gospel, is to recognize who the hero of the story is and who's been delivered. And so we have to stand firm. Now, in the first century, what did, what did it mean to stand firm? When Paul wrote to the Philippians, they were facing persecution. Do you remember his experience in Philippi? He got arrested. He got beaten. I can't imagine the church after him got any better treatment. They, but they stood firm. They weren't pushed away. They had arrayed against them in Philippi, the Roman government wasn't sure if it recognized Christianity as an authorized religion or not. Is it part of Judaism, which we don't like, but we authorized? Is it not? Is it atheism? We don't know what it is. So they had the Romans against them. What we'll see in a little bit is they had the Jews against them too. The Judaizers came in and said, dude, you got to be circumcised. You can't be saved. I mean, come on, you can't be saved without circumcision. So they had the Jews against them. And then they had the local authorities, the people who just didn't understand them, the Gentiles against them as well. So for them to stand firm, they were being attacked on every single side. What's it look like for us to stand firm today? There are overt attacks on the faith. There are people who say terrible things about Christians. There's this 
this assumption that Christianity is horrible for people, that it's oppressive, that it's bad. But generally, I think the reason that we're told to stand firm, the way that we have to stand firm is not those raging waves washing over us, trying to pull us away. I think the way that we have to stand firm is as the Western culture begins to drift away from what the Christianity that really shaped and formed it, as it begins to drift and head in another direction, we're not fighting a wave that's crashing in on us. We're fighting this low tide that is just constantly pulling strong, but slow and steady. It's drawing us, the culture is, is drawing more and more towards materialism. What materialism is, is the only thing that really exists is what you can see, tell, taste, touch, smell, observe, measure, that kind of thing. There's nothing else. And our, our Western culture is moving in that direction slowly, continually, strongly. And secularism, which is, there's no God. That, that's, that's foolishness. Why do you believe that? And it's harder for us to stand against that because you don't see that tide. The water is moving underneath you and you can feel it pulling you to one direction or the other, but you don't see it like you would if a wave was crashing in on you. So for us, when Paul tells us, stand firm, it's difficult for us. It's, it's difficult in a different way than it was for the first century, but it can be difficult. And so believer, if you're gonna live a life worthy of the gospel, you have to stand firm. You have to feel that cultural tug. One more meme on Facebook ridiculing something, making you think about it. One more uh, tweet that gets posted. One more whatever it is, is that constant pull, that constant draw away from the faith. And we have to stand firm. Well, how can we do that? Come on, Paul, this is difficult. This, the, the, the tide is going out and we're, we're trying to fight against it. I'm only one man. Well, the next thing that he says is he says that we have to stand firm, but he says in one spirit. You're not on your own here. You're not fighting this battle by yourself in one spirit. The ESV has a lowercase s there, spirit. What we tend to think of in, in, in our um, culture is when we talk about a spirit, one spirit, we would say like all in agreement, uh, all kind of happening together in a, in a general kind of uh, attitude and, and approach and basic understandings. That's very modern. It's not the way that they thought of in the first century. So what does he mean by in one spirit? Well, that should probably be capitalized. That, that probably is referring to the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that is because Paul uses that exact phrase, the same three Greek words, he uses it two other times in the New Testament. Uh, one is 1 Corinthians 12, and the other time is in Ephesians chapter 2. And in both cases, it's extraordinarily clear, extraordinarily clear that he is talking about the Holy Spirit. And so the phrase seems to angle that way for him. Um, and so I, I just can't see another way to understand in one spirit other than we have been united to Christ by the Spirit. How can you stand firm? Because you have been given the Spirit Joel read for us this morning from, from uh, Romans 8. We have this spirit that inside us is causing us to call out Abba, Father. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that's happening. And so when we're trying to fight this tide, when that tide is tugging at us so hard, we have to remember it's not just us. The Holy Spirit is at work in us. We are standing firm in one spirit. And then he says, with one mind. Um, there's a couple of ways to understand this, this one mind. 
James talks about a man of two minds being tossed like waves on a sea. So we, we have one spirit leading us in one direction, and we have one mind. We are set. We are focused on what we're about. And so think of Philippi, for example. Um, we're talking about one goal, one purpose, one mind. And in Philippi, you have the Philippian jailer who became a believer. Paul preached to him, baptized him, his whole house believed. Did he stop being a Philippian jailer? Probably not. I don't know for sure. We don't have any historical record. I, I bet he continued in that job. But he did it in a different way now. Now he's thinking of being a Philippian jailer as a Christian and doing the job that he's been called to in Christ. It's hard to imagine, but what did the, uh, John the Baptist say to the, the uh, soldiers that came to him and said, what should we do? He say, oh, man, you got to get out of the military. That's no place for a believer. He said, be good soldiers. Don't extort people. So how would the Philippian jailer be this? With one mind, with one purpose, with one goal, his heart is to desire, is, is to honor Jesus Christ. He's going to be the best Philippian jailer that he can be. The most honest, the most upright, fair to the inmates, faithful to the law. He's, he's going to do his job. What about um, Lydia? Lydia was the first convert in, in Europe. She was a seller of purple. I bet she continued selling purple. That's a lucrative business. But now she's doing it in a different way. She's wondering, how can I use this, this resources that I have to benefit others, not just other Jews, but Jews and Gentiles in the church? And, and how can I help advance the gospel? Here, you guys take some of my money and send it to Paul. He's, he's going to need some support. Her, her, her job didn't change, but her mind is set on one thing. That is Jesus Christ in the advance of the gospel. Do this. So what about you? Are you of one mind? Is what you do every day, is it centered on, is it focused on who is Jesus Christ and how is his gospel advanced today? As you are what you are. Not that you stop doing all of that and just stand out on a street corner and scream, but just be who you are. Be the Philippian jailer. Be Lydia. Sell that purple but you do it for who you are. This is how you live a life that is worthy of the gospel. This is how you stand firm in one spirit is you have one mind. I'm focused on this. And it's not because I figured it out. It's because I have one spirit. And so now I've been saved. I've been justified. Now I can do that with one mind. Do you got to do this alone? Now go out and do it by yourself. You're on your own. Best of luck. Let me know how it goes. See you in heaven, hopefully. Nope. The very second, the very next thing he says is of one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. You're not in this alone. Jesus didn't save us into isolated little cubicles and say, now, now go figure it out. He saved us into a church. We're side by side. You have fellow believers sitting next to you who are struggling with these same things, who feel that same tide pulling them out. And you have somebody else standing beside you, locking arms in the building. Let's do this side by side. You need the church. You need the church. It, it's Jesus' creation. It's his, his purpose. He bought the church with his blood. He has called us together in one people. And you need the church. You need the brothers and sisters in the seats next to you. Because you have to do this side by side. But notice the word that he uses to describe that, striving. He doesn't say drifting. Uh, he doesn't say reclining. He says striving. Folks, this is going to be hard. 
This is difficult. It is striving to live a life worthy of the gospel. Because of that tide calling us out, because of those external pressures, because of the remaining sin that's in us, because of all of our weakness and our brokenness, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, it's striving. But don't ever confuse your striving with your salvation. You are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Now strive. Now work at it. And so we need to strive, but you need to strive with us. We need to strive together. And that is going to require something a little uncomfortable, a little transparency. We're going to have to talk with people. We're going to have to share some of our struggles. We're going to have to listen to their struggles. We've got to talk with other people, spend some time together. So at, at Trinity, what we try to do is offer opportunities for you to learn more about the scriptures. You need to hear more of God. So we have small groups, but we also do some things that are just fun social things. Why? Is, isn't, is that helping? Yes, it actually is. You need to bump into other saints. And, and not just Sunday morning for a couple hours, but throughout life and hear their stories. So tonight we're going to watch a movie in my backyard. Um, it's not because the movie is the main event. You know what the main event is? You. We want to get you together. We need to strive side by side. We need Sunday morning. Don't neglect this. But we need other, other uh, connections with each other. So invite somebody to your house in the coming weeks. Invite them over for dinner. Invite them out for lunch. Spend some time with somebody else so that you can strive with them. We're not doing it alone. We're not by ourselves. That doesn't mean that every single person who's a believer is going to be in this kind of situation. There are people who are going to be alone and, and, and struggling. For example, Athanasius. The Council of Nicaea announced that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Not too long after that, the church came out and said, yeah, not really. The son was created. There was a time when the son wasn't. And so Athanasius came out and defended the Council of Nicaea, the, the, the Nicaean definition. And so the word that was used of him, because he stood almost on his own, was Athanasius contramundum, Athanasius against the world. There are times when you will be isolated and alone and you will struggle. But Athanasius stood firm. Martin Luther, when he started the Reformation, he was outside the church, the, the church establishment. And so when he is at the Diet of Worms and he's defending the 95 Thesis, he's standing pretty much alone. But he wasn't totally isolated. He had uh, Martin Stu or Stubitz, I can't remember the guy's first name, was, was his confessor, his, his mentor in the faith. Uh, Frederick III, the confessor, was, was his patron who helped him along. So he was kind of isolated, but not totally. But look what God did through Athanasius and through Martin Luther. He defended the deity of Christ, the eternality of the Son. He sparked the Protestant Reformation. But he didn't do that so that you could be alone. So we may have to do that. There may be believers in North Korea who are locked in a cell and will not get to talk to another human being for years, maybe ever. That doesn't make them less Christians. It just affords them less opportunity. You, my brothers and sisters, are blessed. We live in a country with great religious freedom. So strive together. What are we striving for? What are we striving toward? 
So Paul says next, for the faith of the gospel. So be of one spirit, of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's an odd phrase. What does it mean, the faith of the gospel? That's, that's unique. It's not used anywhere else in the scriptures. And so some of the commentators say, well, what it is is it's a genitive of something or other, and it's affirmative in, in, in other fancy Greek words I barely understand. And so it should be the faith of the gospel or the faith in the gospel. But when you go back and look, that's not what it says. It says the faith of the gospel. So what is Paul getting at here? Well, I think this ties back to verse 27, to the beginning. Live a life worthy of the gospel. So the faith of the gospel is not just faith in the gospel, though that's important, impossible to do without. But the faith of the gospel is all that the gospel entails, all that it demands of you, all that it promises you, all that it calls you to, all that it calls you away from. The faith of the gospel is not just the facts. It is the expanse of the gospel, the world-changing view of the gospel. So that's what we're supposed to strive for. That's why our lives will be worthy of the gospel, not just our minds worthy of the gospel or our hearts worthy of the gospel. It's all of us. It's the faith of the gospel, this huge, gigantic idea. So when we're, we're striving together with one spirit, one mind for the faith of the gospel, then the next thing he tells us is how easy it's going to be. Look, you've got all these great benefits. Look at how easy it is. So not frightened by, any of your, by anything of your opponents. Oh, there's an important lesson there. It's going to be scary. Paul tells them not to be frightened because there is a potential for them to be frightened. When we stand against that drawing tide, when that current is, is pulling in one direction, it's frightening to stand against it. You see everybody else going that way. Maybe that's the right way. We're, we're, we're societal creatures. We're communal creatures. And so we like to be part of the crowd. So when the crowd goes that way and we're like standing here, that can be frightening. It can be disarming. But if we're standing side by side for the faith of the gospel, then we don't need to be frightened. We can be sure of this. But he says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. I've got bad news for you. There are people who are not going to be happy for you standing firm for the gospel. There are people who are going to oppose that, who are going to tell you you're closed-minded. You're, you're a little person. How can you be so filled with hate? How can you be so self right What about all those Muslims? And they're going to come down on you. There are opponents to living this way. So what are we supposed to do about that? What does that look like for us? Well, I think it looks pretty, pretty frightening, but we don't need to be frightened of our, our opponents. And why is that? Well, I skipped a little detail about the verse 27 when he says a manner of life. The root of that word that he uses for manner of life is polis. And polis means citizen. So when you think of the word metropolis, that's a large spanning city. Indianapolis is the city of the Indians. So a polis is a city. It's where we get the word for city, for citizen, for civilization, for citizenship. So what Paul actually says in verse 27 is let your citizenship, your life as a citizen, be worthy of the gospel. Well, that's how we can say, how can I face my opponents and not be afraid? Because I need to remember where my citizenship is. And in, in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, our citizenship, it's a word rooted in polis also, our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it, we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how can we not be frightened by our opponents? How can we stand against that tide? What we need to remember is, first and foremost, your primary identity is you are not an American. You are a member of the kingdom of God. You are a member of the kingdom of Christ. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your sojourn is here on earth. Now, does that mean that we will be terrible citizens and hate America? No, absolutely not. It actually frees us up to be the best Americans you can be. Because recognizing our citizenship is in heaven, our allegiance is to Jesus Christ, our mind is up there with him. It gives us the opportunity to stand back and to look at America and critique where she's wrong and uh, compliment where she's right. It, it frees us from having to be pulled into one camp or the other, afraid that our side might lose. We're not on a side. We're freed up. And so we will have opponents. There will be people that are angry. We're not in camp A or camp B. But you don't need to be frightened of them. Your citizenship is in heaven. It cannot be taken away. So live the life of a citizen that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your opponents will not like it. Now, the next thing Paul says is really alarming is he says these, these opponents who frighten you, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. How is a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel a sign of destruction to them. You mean people look at us and they go, oh, I'm damned. I don't, I don't think it's quite that clear, but at its heart, it's there. So for example, listen from the beginning of Romans. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. So how is your life, worthy of the gospel, a clear sign to them of their destruction? Because whether they want to acknowledge it or not, whether they, they can sense it or say it or articulate it or not, they know you're right. At some deep level, they know that's right an instinctual level, not an intellectual level, not, not clearly perceived, but because God wrote the universe, he spoke it into existence, it is going to be in accordance with him. And the more we live in accordance with him, those who are not are going to be more and more upset. It is a sign to them of their destruction. And it's a sign to them of your salvation. They look and they say, there's something different about this person, and it makes me uneasy. What is it? Now, this is only true if you live a life worthy of the gospel. If you fade into the background, nobody's ever going to notice. If you live in total compliance to what's going on in the culture, no one will ever notice. If, if you are a jerk, there is a point where you being a jerk just means that people don't like you. And it does not mean that you're living a life in accordance with the gospel. 
Now, just because somebody calls you a jerk doesn't mean you are, but I mean, there, there, there can come a point where you can just be rude. And that's, that's not what this is about. If we're living lives worthy of the gospel to the surrounding world, what they see is a clear demonstration that they're wrong and that God is right. It's, it's our salvation because it's from God. Our salvation is from God. Their destruction is from God. So don't be a jerk. There's the application. So in verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you that you should believe. It is a gift from God. He has given to you belief that you may trust in him. And in the same hand, in that same gracious hand that says here, believe, be saved, is suffering. How can those two things be good? How can they go together? Why would God allow his children to suffer? Why would he grant to us that we should suffer? To the watching world, that makes no sense. I have seen atheists go, well, of course there's no God. Look at people suffer all the time. They can't conceive of the idea that it might be granted of God to suffer. That that might be part of his plan. Now, anybody here want to sign up for suffering? I don't. Avoid it like anything. But the way that we endure that, the way that we live a life that is in conformity to the gospel, that is worthy of the gospel, that's, that, that is equated to the, the glory of the gospel is by enduring suffering as it comes from the hand of God. That's what's going to make people who are not saved look at you and go, what is up with you? How can you, how can you have joy in the middle of this? Where does that kind of strength come from? I don't understand you people. That's what it means to, to hear that God would offer to you salvation and suffering at the same time. Because he's not doing it because he's cruel. We know from the Bible repeatedly, God is good. And so if he brings suffering to you, it is for good. And we, we heard it over and over again through the New Testament. We'll hear it again through the rest of the book. He has granted to you, not only that you believe, but you suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now have, hear that I still have. The Philippians are engaged in the same conflict that Paul has. Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel. He has been arrested because he is claiming that you are not saved by circumcision or dietary laws or any of those other things. And so the Jews had a fit and had him arrested. And he's now in Rome waiting an appeal to Caesar. That's his conflict. The Philippians saw that and they've experienced it. They are experiencing that suffering as well, that opposition. And yet Paul says, look, you guys, Live a life worthy of the gospel in the midst of that. Look at me, I'm in chains. I'm, I'm about to face potential execution. You can do this. Be of one mind, of one spirit, strive together. And we can do this. It's a sign to the world. It is one way in which the gospel will go forth, will advance, is by the believers living that life. So life worthy, uh, living a life worthy of the gospel means um, even more than being the king of England. 
as Henry V did. It, it has more weight on you than Henry did. Do you think Henry as a king was going to suffer? If he was going to suffer, it was because something went horribly wrong. The life of a king is in a palace. Uh, even in those days when they rode out to war, they, they had plenty of attendants going with them. And yet Henry said, my life will be changed because of the role I've been given. And that's what Paul is telling us here. He's, he's explained it to us. He's painted a picture for us. Live a life worthy of the gospel. You have been adopted. You are co-heirs with Christ. Live that way. It's possible. It's possible because you have one spirit. You, you can have one mind. You can focus your mind on the truth of what you have. You have been saved into a community of people who are going to struggle along those same lines. It's harder for us to live as Christians today than it was for Henry to become a good king. And that was no small feat for Henry. He, he did a lot of partying. And yet, when the kingship fell on his shoulders, he straightened up. So believers, we don't have to sit alone on a throne. We're not isolated from the common people in a, in a castle someplace. We're in the midst of it. We're in the wash of it. We're, we're part of this culture as it drifts, and we're standing firm. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, what you have called us to, if you hadn't sent your spirit to empower us, to equip us, to strengthen us, to hold our arms up, Lord, it would be impossible. We would, like all the others, drift. We'd be carried away by those same impulses and thoughts and desires and allurements and enticements and, and all of those things. But Lord, you've given us one spirit. Everybody in this room, we share together in one spirit. And therefore, our minds being renewed by your word are united. Lord, would you grant to us here at Trinity to strive side by side. Lord, would you cause us to encourage each other to live a life worthy of the gospel? Lord, would you equip us to rebuke each other when we're not living a life worthy of the gospel? Lord, would you help us as a community to suffer for Christ in a way that would magnify and glorify him? And Lord, through that, would you advance your gospel here in the Antelope Valley? We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you.